We are in Luke chapter 4. Finally, we've, uh, we've made progress, four chapters in the last few months, and uh, we are in the, the gospel that is for those who least expect it. That's what we've been titling this, this sermon series. It is the gospel for the unlikely. It's the good news about Jesus Christ to those who least expect it, those who don't deserve it, and uh, those who are kind of like us. So I invite you to turn there, Luke chapter 4 in your Bible, or scroll, scroll there in your device. And I want to, I want to bring up this point to introduce the sermon. One of the biggest problems of humankind, mankind, is a worship problem. We say it's the biggest problem. And when you think of worship, you, you may think of what we just did in singing, and that's part of worship, but that's not all of what worship is. We do not know whom to worship, and we do not know how to worship. That's not just an us problem, that's an everyone problem. Uh, just think of, think of all of, all of the, the things that people worship. Uh, people give themselves to all kinds of things. And what you give your time to, and what you give your attention to, and your money to, mostly is probably what you worship. And one of the biggest problems with Christians is that we do not know what this means. Most Christians look at a text like Luke chapter 4 and see a three-step program for how to deal with temptation. Jesus defeated temptation, so, so you can too. Here's how. Memorize the Bible, tell the devil to flee, and be successful. Well, friends, if you have uh, ever tried that, you know that all of those steps are good steps. They don't finally deal with temptation to sin. Anyone who is successful in a sort of 12-step program must not enter into that program just for the steps to beat their addiction. Well, why is that? Any addiction counselor will tell you, you, you must get at the reason why you are addicted and even get behind those reasons. And, and while 12-step programs have had some success and are good, and if you're in one, that is, that is a, a good thing, they do not have 100% success in that addicts are always addicts as long as they live. Because there is a bigger problem behind even the deepest reasons why we have addiction. It's a worship problem. At the heart of every sin, at the deepest level of an unforgiving spirit or greed or hatred or laziness is a worship problem. Now, I don't mean that we don't need to deal with the other factors like a chemical imbalance or deal with the factors like some people have sin problems or anxiety problems because sin has been committed against them. I'm not saying we don't deal with that. What I'm saying is at the bottom, as we get back to the root of our sin problem, all of it has to do with worship. Worship is what, you devote, what we devote our attention to. It's what we devote our money to. Older pastors used to say, if you want to know what you worship, you look at your checkbook and you kind of see, well, most of you don't even know what a checkbook is or couldn't write a check. You look at your, your, your bank account and you see, where does your money go? 
where we spend our money, what we devote our times to, what, what you devote to is what you love, you adore. If you, if you want to know what you worship, pay attention to what makes you really happy when you have it, and what makes you really angry or despondent when it's taken away from you. Whatever that thing is, for you and I, is what we worship. The fundamental activity of humans is that we were created for worship. The fundamental thing Jesus came to do was to restore proper worship to humanity. That's what you were made for, to, to, to worship God, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Jesus, who is the, who is the subject of this book of Luke, but also all the Gospels, but also all the Bible... Jesus, the Son of God and Savior of the world, the Savior of men, came to deal with the worship problem. And the way he did that was to deal with it in his person and his work. So Jesus, like we talked about last week, Jesus proves he's the second Adam and the true Israel by demonstrating true worship in his defeating of the devil through this series of temptations. So we're going to talk about this morning is Jesus restores true worship by defeating the devil through experiencing temptation. That's probably too long, but just get this. Jesus restores true worship by defeating the devil. We're going to look at that by just going back through the story that I read for you, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to see three temptations, three responses, and one massive victory. We're going to take the temptations and responses together. And in, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Luke sets up uh, this story ab- about Jesus defeating temptation and, and the devil with some really important details. He, he tells us that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit as he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus is fasting and he's hungry. And, and we need to pay attention as Luke wants us to pay attention even more than the other Gospels. Luke is telling us that Jesus, in his fighting temptation and his defeat of the devil, though he was fully God, although he was truly God, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not do this on his own, but depended on the power of God through his Spirit. And Jesus is taken into the wilderness. And when you see, the, you see that phrase, in the wilderness, you should remember back to the Old Testament in, in Exodus. As uh, the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, they came out and they were led into the wilderness to spend a time there being, uh, being nurtured and also tested by, by God. Now, we should probably just mention this right away that being tempted by the devil and being tested by God are different things. Jesus, uh, God, tempts no man, James tells us. Uh, and yet he tests people. He tests people not because he doesn't know, like, hey, I wonder if he knows this thing, I'm going to test them, right? He doesn't do it like that. He tests them to reveal what is going, or to reveal what they know, to reveal what they feel, and to reveal what they will do in certain situations. So, 
God tempts, t- does not tempt, he tests his people to, to reveal what's going on, but the devil tempts people so that they will sin. The Holy Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness. He, the true Israel, they were led into the wilderness for 40 years. This, this, we, we should recall the 40 years of testing in the wilderness as they went in, they were tested, and they failed time and time again, just as we do. But Jesus, now the true Israel, led by the Holy Spirit, is tested 40 days in the wilderness, and he is tested and comes out without sin. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Holy Spirit. And he goes in and into the wilderness, and right away he is met by the devil, the, the evil one, the accuser of the brethren. And the thing that the devil tempts him with first is to self-glory. He tempts Jesus after he's fasted for 40 days at a point of weakness, at 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 a point of hunger beyond what probably any of us have ever experienced. He fasts for 40 days and the devil tempts him at his greatest point of weakness to satisfy his hunger. Now, there's nothing sinful about wanting to satisfy one's hunger. We were, we were made to eat, to need food for sustenance. It is a natural, good, and God-given thing. And yet we see at, at the base level of the devil's temptation of Jesus is to provide for himself in ways that God had not ordained for him. And friends, I think it reminds us that our desires, even God-given desires, are not the only criteria for our decision-making. You should not eat every time you're hungry. You should not hit or yell or ignore every time you're angry. You should not have sex just because you want to. Our God-given desires, even like hunger, are to be met in God-given ways. It was not God's will for Jesus to use his divine power to turn bread into or to, to turn a rock into bread to satisfy his hunger. The devil wanted to tempt him to self-glory, to self-sufficiency, and not do things God's way. Our, our desires were not given to us to control us, to identify us. At the very bottom of our being, we are not our desires. We are created in God's image. A temptation here harkens back to the wilderness wanderings. In Deuteronomy 8.3, in Jesus' response to the devil, he harkens back to Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, "You man does not live by bread alone, but what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3, uh, it harkens back to when the people were in the wilderness and sort of wanting to go back to Egypt, to slavery, because they had meat and onions and other good-tasting food. And why did God let them hunger in the wilderness for a time? Because... He said, Moses writes and reflects on this. He says, and he, that's God, humbled you and let you hunger 
and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Friend, you are not the sum of your desires. Not all of our desires are evil, but not all of our desires are good. You are not the sum of your feelings. Our feelings and desires should, should not drive us in the most fundamental ways to, to, to make decisions about ourselves. If Jesus let his desire for food control his decision at this moment, he would have not been the savior of the world. The Lord humbled them and fed them so that they might know, so that Israel might know that God's word sustains people in what they were created for. And that's worship, not food. They were created to need food to sustain them physically, but they were created to need the word of God to sustain them spiritually in worship. One can worship God while eating food to satisfy hunger, to be sure, but they must depend on God even for that food. And this is exactly what Jesus did. It comes down from heaven, this food that came down from heaven was even greater, an even greater food, and the, the manna that came down and fed them and satisfied their hunger was to remind them that they have a spiritual hunger, and so do you. Every time your stomach growls and your, your, your stomach is empty, it, is, it was partly given to remind you that you have a hunger that can only be satisfied by God himself, God alone. His words tell you to depend on him. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. That's, that's what we sang earlier this morning. That is exactly uh, the, the kind of thing Jesus was going through in your place. The devil tempted Adam and Eve to decide for themselves whether the food of the tree was good or not. And the devil is telling Jesus to depend on himself and to do things his own way. But Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, responds to the devil with this very verse I read above and with the proper application of it. Food is not evil, but it is not the main thing that you were made for. You were made, even in your eating of food, to glorify God, enjoy him, for to depend on him. So Jesus' response to this temptation teaches us that man must live by God's word and not by their desires, even good desires. Jesus was the true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, the true and better you. He not only understood that God's word must guide his actions, he not only believed that God's word must guide his actions, he made a decision in line with that belief. Will you? Jesus was tempted on your behalf, dear friend. And he shows the way to deal with temptations. Do not give in to your strongest desires. Do not depend on yourself to meet your needs. Depend on God and him alone and look to his word. Friends, in our culture of that pride's self-sufficiency, depending on God is countercultural. How are you showing that in your life? Praying for your daily bread is weird in this culture. 
taking a day of, of rest away from the piles of work that you have to do, saying, no, only God can help me get through this work, and he's made me to need rest, pointing to a greater rest. Friends, we can depend too much on others as well, not only just self-sufficient, we can also depend too much on others or, or not depending on brothers and sisters in Christ because you want to be self-sufficient. Both of those are, are sins, and God is saying, look to me and me alone. So Jesus shows how not to depend on self. He, he shows how, how to fight the temptation of, of, of self-glory. And he says, depend on me in my words. How to depend on God in, in doing so. He defeats the devil and his temptation. So the devil then takes him from the wilderness and takes him, Matthew tells us, into a high mountain. Luke just says he takes him up. He, he takes him up in verses 5 through 8, and the devil took him up, and he, showed, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, and the text doesn't tell us how he did this, just that he did it. And he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, and he says, here you go. I will give them to you if you just bow down and what? Worship me. It'll all be yours. It will all be yours. It's a, this is a temptation to cosmic glory, to take the authority of, and we know how, what, what power does to people. We know what, what this kind of glory does to people like Alexander the Great and, and Nero and, and Hitler and, and all the other, even, even good rulers, what power can do to people, the temptation to power and authority over people. But the weird thing is, if Jesus is God, he already has authority over people. He, he already has this authority and power and glory. And yet we, we see in his, in his life as he comes as a baby born in a cattle stall. And he, he is humbled. He is in his humiliation, as theologians have called it. And he is in his probation as a, as a human, as a, as a man, and yet he's still fully God, and he denies this temptation to take glory apart from the way God would give it to him. The glory was his. The authority was his. And the devil is tempting him to grasp this authority without suffering. This is the, this is the way that Jesus will receive glory the way he will receive glory is by living a whole life of suffering. Living these 33 years, 30 years as a carpenter's son, getting splinters in his hands and probably his adoptive dad dying and taking care of his, his family and entering into his ministry. And the first act after he's baptized as the Son of God is to be tempted. If you are the Son of God, do this. If you are the Son of God, do this. Tempted to take this glory apart from the cross. Can you imagine? If Jesus did that, none of us would be here. The temptation to worship other gods, to worship even the devil or, or, or even something lesser than the devil, some other kind of creature or created being has been there from the beginning. Do you remember in Exodus when the, when the people came out of Egypt and Moses went up onto the mountain 
Jesus is probably on a mountain right now, and Moses went on the mountain to receive the words of God, and as Moses comes down, he, he, they hear the sound of, of war and partying. And with God's law, he comes down and he sees God's people worshiping this golden calf, and he breaks the law out of anger. The temptation to worship God didn't leave them when they left the wilderness. When they went into the land, God had to tell them, listen, you're going to be tempted to worship other gods and to take the, the surrounding nations' gods as your gods and worship them. This temptation is old as the beginning. At its core, it's to, to trust in other things besides God. Trust in things that you can see. Trust in trust in. In, in things that you can control, it's to, it's, to, it's to worship by trusting those kinds of things. Temptation is not dissimilar to what you go through, dear friend. God gives you, I mean, we sang a song about how long, oh Lord, how long? How long will you let suffering last? And you're tempted every day to relieve that suffering. Friends, this is a temptation to worship something else besides God. You're tempted to relieve that suffering in ways that God uh, does not want you to, that God commands you not to, either, either, either sexually or, or maybe your temptation is, to, is to, to, to lie about your taxes or to cheat on a test or, or, or to lie some other way. And God's saying, listen, you are trying to control things you are basically worshiping things that you can, can see. You're worshiping yourself as you try to control these things because you're trying to get out of suffering to get to glory without suffering. To wander in the wilderness and trusting and worshiping God, not knowing when and where they will find their next meal or water, that is a kind of suffering. And they were tempted to, to relieve that suffering in different ways. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's get rid of this Moses. He just brought us out here to die. What is your temptation? And God, in, in the person of Jesus Christ, responds to this temptation as he, as he tells them, as he, as he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The Lord God's way for Jesus was suffering, was the cross before the crown. And the devil was offering the crown without any cross. Instead of taking shortcuts on your taxes, maybe it, it, it looks like for you to, to deny this temptation in your life, it, it may look like not fulfilling your sexual desires outside of marriage in any way. Maybe the cross before the ground or, or, or having suffering before glory may look to you like not lying on a job application or a college application so you can get your dream job or get into your, your dream college. But for Jesus, it was, no, I'm going all the way to the cross for my people and if you have turned to him in repentance and faith, that is you. The temptation was to look away from suffering, to recoil back from suffering. 
and to receive glory without the cross. The glory without the suffering that God had for him. And Jesus says no. Deuteronomy, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, which says, It is the Lord your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. This is in the the context of of Israel and our own hearts wanting to worship other things so we do not have to suffer. So so, So that we do not have to go through the hardships that God has placed us in. And, and Jesus, the Son of God and true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, says, work God and God alone you shall worship. Notice again, he goes straight to God's word in, in Deuteronomy. And the devil tempts us to self-glory and cosmic glory. And uh, it may be only my kids in here, but thirdly, he tempts us to, to stupid glory. If your parents have told you not to say stupid, you shouldn't say it, okay? But the reason I, I call it stupid glory is because the devil goes on to tempt Jesus to test, to tempt God. Well, let's just read it again. He goes from the wilderness up to a mountain, and now he's in, Jer- in Jerusalem, and he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, which, by the way, is probably where James was thrown down uh, by, by, the, the, by the ruler in Jerusalem and died. He's up there, so it's at this very high point, the pinnacle of the temple, and it's a place of worship. And we've seen Jesus, we, we've seen this story. Luke has us in the temple in, in different places. This is, this is where Zechariah got his, his vision it's, uh, it's where uh, Anna and, and Simeon were. It's, it, it's the place where his disciples will be and they will gather. And, he, and Jesus is led by the devil up to the pinnacle of the temple. And he says again, this, the one who was baptized and, and the voice from heaven said, You are the Son of God. Now the devil says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And now the devil ramps up the temptation, and he, now he quotes the Bible. And he, he takes uh, Psalm 91, and he says, You can do this because it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. The devil is turning up the heat in the temptation. He uses Scripture the devil misquotes the, the Bible here, and he, he quotes it out of context. He is a professional at misusing the Bible. And the misuse of the Bible has been a cause for much error and, and heresy, dear friends. Uh, there, there, are rarely a, there are rarely heretics that don't use the Bible, even with good intentions. It's a cause for a lot of a heartbreak for religious people. It's one of the reasons why we're committed to preaching the Bible expositionally in the context, because we can rip verses out of context all the time and, and, and come up with false teaching that is, is damnable and, and, and bad for God's people. Be careful how you use the Scripture. Use it in context, in, in the way God wants you to. 
a text used out of context. You maybe heard this before. It is a proof text for a proof text. And there are lots of other religions that can use the Bible to make it say whatever they want it to say. It would take the Bible in context. Even the devil uses the Bible. My friends, another word for the devil, another form of the word for the devil can mean accuser. It's, a, it's the verb form of diabolos. It, it means to inform on or accuse. It, it's used in the, the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament in Daniel 3 and in Daniel chapter 6. It means to accuse falsely. Diabolos, the devil, is, is the misrepresenter and slanderer of, of God's people. My friends, he doesn't only misrepresent and accuse God's people before God. He actually misrepresents the Bible. This is his only defense. You see it in the garden and we see it here. He, can, he cannot win the case. He's like, he's like a crooked lawyer who misrepresents the facts on a, on a court case. He's the accuser that misrepresents and misuses Scripture to try to trip up the Son of God. But dear friend, your court case has been tried and adjudicated, and, and, and it, it, it is because Jesus Christ responded the way he did to, to this temptation. Jesus Christ, in his response, goes to Deuteronomy 6 again. And Jesus answers the devil in his misuse of the Bible. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In Deuteronomy 6.16, it says, as you did at Massa. Do you, now, if you can recall the Old Testament, Massa is the place where, where uh, God's people, Israel, put God to the test when they demanded water, and when he didn't give it right away, what did they say? Is the Lord really among us? Is he here? If he was here, he would give me what I want. If he was here, he would give me water. If he was here, he wouldn't let us die. Friends, putting the Lord your God to the test like this and like the devil tempts Jesus to do is like putting your spouse or your significant other to the test. It's like testing them. How does this go? If you really love me, you will do this or that. How does that go in a relationship? Not great. Not great. Or, or, or testing them by setting them up to be unfaithful. That, that can be a popular thing to do in this culture. Friends, this is a lose-lose situation all the way around. Even if they pass the test, you will be the loser. I promise you. Why? Because you've broken trust by making unreasonable demands on their love. It, this is an unreasonable demand of God. To cast himself down demanding, you promised God, you promised that you wouldn't let anything happen to me, therefore I'm going I'm to go headlong off the temple and you have to keep your promise. Listen, that's just dumb, right? That's why I call it stupid. This is tempt to stupid glory. We, we don't do, we, you don't do that kind of thing. And we can do this kind of thing all the time in the name of being spiritual, I feel like God's calling me to quit my job and just depend on him through prayer. Really? How would you know that? I'm not trying to offend you, but how would you know that? 
One of the ways you can know is by talking to other people, other godly people, by praying about it. Why would God want you to quit your job? Maybe he does, but does he? You don't do it and put God to the test. That's an unreasonable demand on his love. Maybe God wants you to suffer through this job, to, and this will bring him glory. Maybe God wants you to just uh, to, to suffer through and to, to, the, to the, through the routines of life and not, not tempt him in a way that is, is evil or unfaithful. Friends, this is, this is an unreasonable demand on God's care for people, and it's a misuse of, of Psalm chapter 91. He, he, he leaves out words, he's, he's making, the devil is making demands, but Jesus' response to him comes, and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God tests us, the devil tempts us, but, but we don't test God, not in this way. The, the, way we, the, the way we know that God loves us is by looking to him, by, by seeing that Jesus, although being tempted to self-glory, defeated that temptation by trusting in God's word as the bread of life. And Jesus defeated the temptation to cosmic glory or to, to take authority apart from suffering, apart from God's way. In this wrong way, he defeated temptation by worshiping God in God's way. And he, he defeats this, this, this notion of, of tempting God to false worship, to bow down to, to Satan. He, 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 he defeats it by, by telling him there is one and one alone that we should worship, and it's God himself. And in doing so, he shows that he himself is God. He himself is worthy of worship. And all this glory and all this defeating of temptation didn't lead him out of suffering, but led him into more suffering, the way of suffering, the way to the cross. And when he defeated the cross, when, when he defeated death and, and sin and the devil, through faithfulness to God and his word by worshiping God alone, he was raised to glory. He, he, was, he was raised to, with the crown, ascended to, to heaven to, to, to welcome in sinners like you and I. Friends, this is not a three-step process for you to defeat temptation. It is, a, it is the example for us in how we face temptation. But this is, a, this is a teaching for us about God, Jesus Christ, in his person and his work was done for you. This, this defeat of temptation was done in your place. This suffering was done in your place. And the call to you is to trust him. Is to, to look to him as the defeater of temptation, the defeater of Satan, the, the one who defeats sin. But look to him now. So in your questions... You may have questions like the psalmist. How long, Lord, will you let me stay in this suffering? How long, oh Lord, will you be far from me? How, how, how long will I, I have to suffer? And we can come back with, psalm, with God's words 
but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Friend, in Jesus, he's dealt bountifully with you. He will not let you suffer more than you can handle. In Jesus Christ, he will not let you suffer more than the gospel's good news will, will able, be able to bring you out of it. And Hebrews tells us that he is a faithful and compassionate high priest that suffered all of these things, yet without sin. He suffered temptation so that he might be able to deal with you compassionately in your temptation. Friend, will you, will you look to him? Not just in your temptation, but all of your life. Look to Jesus, our great high priest who suffered and defeated temptation for you. Let's pray. Lord, finish these, your words in our hearts. That we might behold you in your steadfast love. That we, we might be satisfied with you through our sufferings, through our temptations, and through our whole life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.